Hi. Is this on? <laughs> Actually, no, it really isn't on. It is. It is. You can hear me? Yes. Yay. <laughs> Very good. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming to this Faith in Writing event that is an off-campus or off-site event for the AWP conference, which is happening right now in Portland. So you are participating in an event for creative writers, by creative writers, about creative writing, and also faith, um, which really belongs here at this particular institution. So I want to thank people before we start and before I introduce everything that's happening. I wonder um, if, my, our, if our readers might, might come up. I want everybody to come up at once so no one feels like they're the person who came up first. But maybe just come and, and sit here. Would that be all right? So the plan is to have our four readers go one at a time, obviously, and I'm going to introduce each reader to you, um, and I'm going to have them come up and read here at the podium, if that works for everybody. Excellent. Um, so I just wanted to start with a few thanks. Obviously, thank you to the University of Portland for hosting us and having us here. Um, everyone in the English department, <coughs> I want to thank everyone in the English department for helping with this, especially our chair, Dr. Larson, who was a huge part of making this actually work. Um, everyone at the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, thank you so much for making this happen. They were co-sponsors of this event. Um, Dr. Karen Eifler, thank you for making all this happen. You're a wizard. You're actually a wizard. So thank you very much for all of that. <laughs> um, the Schoenfeld Distinguished Writer Series, I also want to thank because they helped sponsor this event. Uh, and I don't believe Dr. John Orr is here, but I want to give a shout out to Dr. John Orr for making that happen as well. Also, Jessica Murphy-Moo, who's editor of the Portland Magazine, and Mark Covert, who's senior staff writer and associate editor uh, of the magazine. They contributed heavily to this project. Again, we wouldn't have these writers if that wasn't the case. Um, and I, of course, want to thank all of you for coming. Thank you very much. Um, so the purpose of this panel was to bring together four amazing writers to talk about um, how their creative work connects to their faith. Um, the goal was to think about creative writing as something that is not separate from faith, that's not separate from a life connected to that, but is in fact always um, intersecting and always interconnecting with that. And that was our, our stated goal for this particular thing. So the plan today, just to let everybody know, um, is I'm going to, again, introduce each reader, have them come up and read for you. Uh, at the end of that, we're going to spend some time with some Q&A. I have some questions that students have already written. We're going to try to get to a couple of those. I have some questions of my own for the readers to answer, and then I'm going to hope to open it up to you to ask some questions. So if you have questions at the end, if you're responding, please do take the time to raise your hand and ask questions. Uh, that is definitely what we're here for. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first reader today, uh, Rachel Jameson Webster. Uh, is the director of creative writing program at Northwestern University. She's a poet, an essayist, a memoirist, a visual artist, 
uh, an author of three full-length collections of work, including The Endless Unbegun, a hybrid genre book which employs both prose and poetry to examine a love story over many lifetimes. Uh, and her most recent poetry collection, Mary is a River, um, creates an, an intimate and emotional portrait of the biblical and Gnostic figure of Mary Magdalene. Um, Webster's work has won decorations and awards from the Poetry Foundation uh, and the American Academy of Poets. Uh, she's also worked heavily with young writers in the Chicago area, including co-founding Words 37 with Maggie Daly uh, and co-curating two edited volumes of writing from young Chicago writers, Alchemy and Paper Atrium. About her most recent collection of poems, uh, Joan Diaz wrote, Webster writes with such sensitivity about the profundity of love, the errors of history, and the precipice of death. These poems attend to the flexible borders between bodies and the natural uh, landscape with fire, beauty, and insight. Uh, please welcome Rachel Jameson Webster. Thank you, Matthew, for this opportunity. And to everyone here, what a warm welcome and what a sincere and beautiful conversation that we just had and um, evening that you've allowed for. Um, we don't always get to talk about our creative work as aspects of our faith and our deepest selves and our deepest questions. Oftentimes, I think the conversation becomes very aesthetic which is part of it, but it's usually not why we do this. So um, I'm very grateful that you set up this space. Thank you. Um, so today I will read from this book, Mary the River, which is my new book, um, but it's taken a long time to get here. So it's a book that I've wrote for many years, 15 years, I realize, to be exact. Um, and it is a moment, I started it in a moment when I was really between lives. I was in a very dark space. I had been living in a very kind of secular way. Like I had, I felt like um, spirituality was not really a part of my life. And that was a soul death for me. I felt very far from my true self and um, realized that I needed to shift things. And so this book arose from that, where I was deep in a meditation about, it really felt like a spiritual purification, truthfully, where I wanted to get to a place of greater truth. And I was writing my own poems about my own life, which if you read any of my other books, September, those are written in that way. And sort of in the middle of it, it was like a voice interrupted that voice of my own life. And I realized that a lot of poets that I'd read worked with Greek mythology, for instance, and they would, they would write through myths in that way. And I thought, well, I... And I had been a spiritual seeker for so long, so I'd read a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism, and I thought, what would happen if I entered the central story? Not only of my own life, and my own upbringing, but of our culture. And how do I enter the spiritual? How do I get back to that spiritual heart, but do so as a woman? 
um, because there is a lot of pain in our place in all of this as women. So this book um, sort of came up with the Magdalene voice, and I took as the premise of the project the idea that she was herself a spiritual leader and a partner for Jesus, but also a, a leader. Um, and she was part of, she was considered one of his disciples, according to the Gnostic Gospels. And in many of them, referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved more than any other. Um, and she even wrote her own gospel, the Gospel of Mary, or one is attributed to her. Those were all left out of the canonical gospels in um, 300, the Council of Nicaea, because the the Gnostic gospels were not um, accepted as part of the the canonical gospels. And then in 400 or 500, I have it in the, um, the afterword here, Pope Gregory decided to make Mary Magdalene all the same Marys. So Mary Magdalene was the same as Mary of Bethany, the same as the sister of Martha, and then said that she was the same as the person who anointed Jesus was the same woman as the one who used, um, who was a prostitute. So basically this figure who's in even the canonical gospels at all the most important moments became a prostitute. So it's interesting that this book would come out now in the middle of the Me Too movement because I do think we're culturally grappling with women's wisdom and how it has been maligned and sexualized when it, it has been here all along and it's been wisdom all along. So that was actually repealed by the church, the Roman Catholic Church in 1969 as scripturally inaccurate. But it was, the damage had been done in consciousness. So if you say Mary Magdalene, um, some people will think of the Da Vinci Code and think of a romance, right? And others will think that she is the prostitute. And I do want to say there's a compassion at the heart of the story of the prostitute that I think is very important to the story. But there's still this framing that... Um, there, there's a character, there are many Marys, and there's a character in there who is a wise priestess who has been characterized in this way. So this book sort of stayed with me. I wrote with this voice for a long time and really tried to grapple with how to be spiritual in this way, how to honor this tradition and be true to a female way of knowing. That's enough introduction. Here's the poems. I've been folded like a mushroom in the dirt. I've been trapped like something dirty in the dirt. I've hidden myself in layers of self, folded into curtains and veils and mothering. And now there's nothing left to do but begin to tell myself the story. I could say it all so simply. I could say, once I lived, and my living was like divining. The deeper I moved toward the truth of my life, the wilder the wand of me sang and was sung. I could say I loved, and when I loved, even deserts beat in me like a sea.
bodies, how fragile they were. By being bodies, how young. Sun sifted into the skin of our wrists and glittered up in its geometries. It raised us from dirt into our limbs and our hands. Our hands became balms and tutors and birds. They led us like strange elders. We spoke so many languages with our hands. They strummed us up into knowing the being that needed release. And sometimes remembering like this, waiting for my voice to thicken, I think we were just children. We were just children born so sensitive we chafed against the world. I think we were just children, so terrified of death we had to make ourselves myths. Then I think that's a small way to tell the story, a summary. If we were children, we were also sand stinging the children's eyes, calling up water to swaddle flaw into pearl, heal the eye by making it cry. If we were sand, we were also the wind carrying sand, also the tides conversing with the wind. Understand, it was abstract even as it was happening. I could feel myself quickening into the life of the spirit. I hadn't known I'd been waiting for anything. As a girl, I'd awakened every morning in destiny's hot eye. But lately, I'd felt that gaze widen and retract from me. I had learned more deeply the ways of women, growing golder, becoming slowly wheat in a field of wheat. We, we, we wove the work of the seasons, and in our chattering waves of generations, in the wide webbing roots between us, I knew my destiny was our destiny. So I had what I needed, and I had something else, like a stone or glow, suspended somewhere beneath my breastbone. I could visit it, not like a place, but like a musical tuning, to see if it were balanced in me. In this way, I knew through my body the currents of our time. So I knew I'd know when I saw him if he was what they said, a teacher, a messenger, a son of man. I stood at the gate to watch him pass. And he saw me. He became the first person ever really to see me, and I felt him, the goodness, immediately. It was beyond what I had called human. It is what is possible for the human who has given up smallness. I stood shock still, my breath leaving me for the wind. I was stunned then embarrassed by my own surprise, which I felt was a lack of preparation. So I went inside to get something, anything to give him. But I thought then that even my gift would be evidence of my unworthiness. I understood then how we humans hide our shame and our belongings. I grabbed the jar of finest oil because I wanted him to be recognized but also because I wanted to free myself from the wealth that had contained me in the world. 
See, immediately my love was buffeted by my thinking. Immediately everything was upside down and righted. I traveled with men who hated me and women who feared me. And at times terror moved through me in a tumult of strings. Fear changed the music in me, which was confusing, because I knew fear was doing enough damage in the world. Those nights, I would wish I had not been chosen, forgetting that I, too, had chosen. My body would go so cold, the shoals of the dark would roll on so long and so deep, I would see myself as just a single frozen bone rattling on the sands. I would think that by walking away from my old life, I had chosen the life of a story, a ghost. There was a cynicism to our time, with violence's constant simmer and a glaze over the eyes. It was much like your time. Fear had bled into the waters. We had been nursed on worry. The eyes of the world saw the part, not the whole. They were dividing eyes, hooked on ornaments and forms. But just as the faithful seem naive to the faithless, so do the faithless seem blind to the faithful. We knew that love begets love, fear begets fear, strength begets strength, that this is what it means to be the living word. Our lives were our art, as they always are with beings of the spirit. We lived in coincidence, synchronous movement until meaning rose from our motion like steam from our breathing. And when his life ended with its terrible climaxing death, all became art and art's endless imitations. We've been living under that tarp of the sky for thousands of years. They raised him high in his humility, and they entombed me in my grief, and my mouth filled with dust, and I choked on my invisibility. Anger became my apocrypha, the part of me I could never express, never condone. Each time I tried, my tongue was torn, my back burned, so it flowed up through the ages in red. It glittered in windows and legends where my hair wore the anger my mouth would not share. It glowed, blood warm and gold, my iron halo. Those days were my life. Eating apricots warm from the orchards, bits of salted fish. My hair, when I moved, releasing the scent of wood smoke, how softly we would sing, setting out on clay roads as the sun rose, our stoppered talk calming the dust, the soft sounds of us singing, and the light, clear patterings through the leaves, playing its trembling notes on the faces, need and hope flickering in the faces of the people, then truth like clean rain breaking over us, truth like a wind and sudden rapidity in which we would feel again and see. Those days, it was as if the very sun was loving us. Our future was opening flawlessly as a blossom in a sea of nodding blossoms. We were alive in the moment we were becoming.
But what is more difficult to describe than bliss? Bliss, by being bliss, belies specifics and is impossible to express in the space of a story which always chronicles what was once and now is lost. The story slivering is a lie, its ordering of time a lie, an alabaster box designed by our minds to contain what's beyond time. We did not live days. We lived one undivided eternity. When we were alive, we knew that time was just a story we played at for a time. Do you remember the birds threading through the sleeves of air? Sunlight playing in iridescent scales on the waves? Do you remember stepping into that water and letting it hold you? Do you remember the waves breaking around you and afterward the shock of skin, the world now without him? Remember, you stepped in and in and into that river and it rushed you under and delivered you shining. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next reader, uh, Eva Hooker, is a sister of the Holy Cross, professor of English and writer in residence at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. She's the author of three collections of poetry, including her most recent full collection, Godwit, which was published by Three Taos Press in 2016. Her work has been honored as a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award, a Pushcart Prize, and was also included in Best New Poets. Buoyed by an almost encyclopedic knowledge of literature, theology, and a grasp of natural taxonomy that would make Carl Linnaeus want to step up his game, her work is both inspired by and examines the ecology of the Northland and the natural beauty of places like Lake Superior. We are here for the Carl Linnaeus jokes. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> About her most recent collection, Godwit, Pulitzer Prize, and National Book Award-winning poet Frank Bedart wrote, this is an amazing book. At the center of existence is a wound in the natural order, past cure. These poems respond by giving the reader ecstasy and acknowledgement and ravishment. These pages are electric. The great mystics do indeed live. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Eva, Eva Hooker. Thank you very much, Matthew. Sorry, this thing. Now, can everybody hear me? Okay. Got to get it out of my eye. Anna Akhmatova is one of my favorite poets, although I can't read her in her native Russian. However, there's a little preface that she wrote to her sequence of poems called Requiem. And in this, she talks about the role of witness. 
In the fearful years of the Yezlev terror, I spent 17 months in prison queues in Leningrad. One day, somebody identified me. Beside me in the queue, there was a woman with blue lips. She had, of course, never heard of me. But she suddenly came out of that trance, so common to us all, and whispered in my ear. Everybody spoke in whispers there. Can you describe this? And I said, yes, I can. And then something like the shadow of a smile crossed what had once been her face. And she, of course, was waiting there every day to bring a loaf of bread to her son who was imprisoned there. The reason I read, read you that piece is I think of the poet or the writer, not just a poet, but writers as witnesses, very important witnesses to what it is that they know as truth. And one of the poems I sent ahead of time for the students is one I wrote last year. It is not in this book. And its title is in Middle English. Teach me that nadeth to wit. Which means in modern English. Teach me that needs to know. And I think that's such an interesting uh, uh, prayer on the part of Julian. Teach me that needs to know. And I had two questions in this poem. The first is the first line, and those who are beautiful, who can know them? And I was reminded as the sweet baby uh, at dinner, who is so beautiful, reminded me of the uh, reason I started the poem was of the daughter of friends of mine who was running across the yard in her pretty Sunday dress and just higher flying, curls flying behind her. She had long, dark hair that just naturally went in wild ringlets. And she just looked so beautiful. And all that child longing in myself just went, oh. And I thought, who can know that child? And that's the instant uh, uh, of the opening of the poem. The second is even more intimate, which is, when you lift yourself up to the mouth of another, that is, in a kiss, what is its proof text? Okay. So, when you kiss someone, what is your proof text? Okay, those of you in mathematics can worry over that one for a while. So, here's the poem. Teach me that nadeth to wit. And those who are beautiful, who can know them? The child murmuring as she runs, keep safe, my joy. 
her flowering, then her fading, seem forms of trespass, like the scattering of peony blossoms after a storm. Their beauty oddly drags them to earth. What then? What then? When you lift yourself up to the mouth of another, what is its proof text? When Julian asked, who shall tell me, who teach me that needeth to wit, what need marked her, what desire, what gave her to say that God is like a circle whose center point is everywhere, whose circumference is nowhere? Her language, geometry, oddly cool. Her words, backlit and sure. How do such words arrive? as signature within the body of another, speaking God. Her gesture holds. Do not turn from this in her mouth like honey. Slowly she breaks her sentence. A fragmentary of whom she knows, shivering at dawn. What then? What then? Peony petals. The second impulse that I work from an impulse may be the wrong. Practice is the better word. Practice I work from is a form of Lexio Divina, which is ordinarily holy reading. But I have a little practice as I begin writing of reading a poem by someone else, and I always have a book going. So I Pick the next, just turn the next page and slowly read the poem, slowly read the poem again, slowly read the poem again in order to re-engage myself, get myself out of my teaching space and into my writerly space. And one of the texts which I have used in the past uh, you will find poems in this book, uh, Godwit, uh, based on these texts, come from Hildegard of Bingen, uh, a medieval mystic. And I was very fascinated with the place in her writing in which Jesus seems to touch her in her soul. And she, she writes, when a person's mind is touched by me, I am her beginning. And then she goes on several paragraphs later, and she says, when I begin to touch her mind, 
she may say to herself, what is happening to me? And this, of course, is Jesus talking. Then I touch again. And there was something about that, that, that touch, that the speech of God within, uh, Hildegard was somehow touch. And I was trying to imagine what that touch would be like. And the word that came to me was God's salt, which I stole right out of uh, Cormac McCarthy, The Road. It's way at the end of the novel, and everybody skips over it. <laughs> so go back and look. The last couple of pages. This is called Solomon's Seal. And, of course, Solomon's Seal is a beautiful wildflower. It's all over this campus. Uh, not right now, but it'll get here soon. And that long, uh, uh, vine-like uh, 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 vines. And then you lift up, and there are these beautiful white bell-like flowers. Okay, now you'll hear the lines. Solomon's Seal. And fourth... The particulars of rapture come. Words for want, underbrush, twig, drought, withered wild rose, a sudden upgathering of lance-like green, the flower turning within shadow, toward shadow, away into shadow, as if to say, here, here was my beauty. Then as if a fastening. When a person's mind is touched by me, I am her beginning. Trust the axis of my stem, summoning yourself through line to the drawing of matter, your keening to be. Let out into. Let out then ask after, as if asking after would make the particular into harmony. Let me read that line again so you really get it. Let out, then ask after, as if asking after would make the particular into harmony. When I begin to touch her mind, she may say to herself, what is happening to me? Then I touch again. The flash of it as a flash of fire, like a seal upon your heart, like a seal upon your arm. The flash of it as a flash of fire, a flame, beauty, a flame, like a seal upon your heart of Yahweh. The flash of it like a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. The flash of it as a flash of fire, like a seal. Its roots can leave your mouth tingling and numb. When the stalk is broken, a scar forms. When she feels my touch, she hastens to me. God salt like the heart to the water brook, gently constrained in such a way that the light could not reach the darkness, nor the darkness the light, eclipsing.
One of my favorite poets is the great Canadian poet, Anne Carson. And my students think she is about the hardest poet they've ever read in their whole lives. And uh, this is, uh, I think, primarily true because she calls upon a whole frame of discourse belonging uh, from the classics to contemporary everything. And movies, uh, TV, technology, you name it, she's uh, into examining its guts. And one of the sentences she says, which I think is very important for the purposes of poetry, which contains this kind of spiritual cartography, is, I am asking you to study the dark. Okay, one of our purposes when you study poetry is to study what you can't see quite clearly. Study the dark until you know the way the dark changes. And one of the poems I wrote, and this was in one of Frank Bedart's workshops, and we were all getting very punchy uh, toward the end of the two weeks. We'd been working five or six hours a day uh, writing, and he said, okay, you gotta write one more poem, brand new poem, nothing that depends on anything else. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and it was midnight, and I had to get myself something. And I thought, rude prayer. Okay? Rude prayer. And uh, my students, when they read this poem, get very shocked. So think about you as me, and uh, no, you as God, and I say as me. Okay, and this is a kind of prayer one of our sisters, um, who was something of a, uh, a holy woman, used to go around talking to Jesus as she cleaned the house. And she'd say the darnest things right out loud. And in some way, she was the inspiration for this uh, poem. So I always say, Mars, thank you very much. Rude prayer. You say... Admit the presence of tears. I say, gesture affords entrance. It makes. You say, the stars are flying apart, cold at the core, the body. I say, there are new tattoos. It hums around here. You say, enter, wound. I say, I'll break and flap my hands. They're bloody knuckles. The furniture is in the fireplace. You say, fine, I'm dancing like God. I haven't eaten in a long time. Move the furniture. I say, I'm cold. Oh, for God's sake, where's the room of halt? I need to load the canoe. You say, I don't know where the dying begins. This is not the worst. I say, hurry up. Where was I when we passed each other? You say, wound is the tough mark of grace. Invite dark night for supper. Go pilfer. I say, at the next moon, put leaves in your mouth. You say, go sleep on a stone. I say, there are new tattoos. Slow soul that I am, 
I want reply. I was getting mad at God's silence. The last poem I'm going to read, I think, is uh, an easy one. Um, and this is Prairie Under Full Moon. This is Godwit, one of the great birds of the prairie. And I think one of the things that being in nature, and good heavens, in Portland, Oregon, you are in God's country, uh, is to really look and see what you see. And so I was walking around in the prairie. I'm not much of a prairie woman, but I was walking around the prairie under the full moon trying to see what there is to see. Prairie under full moon. In the blooming period, everywhere is open. Winds make you arrive where you do not want to go. Disrupt the sequence of the hours. Everything starts talking. Bracked on butterfly godwit. You collide with the place, leave tattooed and bone crackled. Even the chickens shout such that these are called booming grounds. The sun appears to set unexpectedly, the earth to widen and shrink to a moving flatness, as if Jacob's ladder were built sideways. Angels roam restlessly, anxious to deliver their burden. They make crossings of weird gravity and synaptic light. You see, words are not always accurate. Sometimes they are prone to excess and mutiny. What does the body mean to say by trembling? O oh, sparrow, speak the bird's O. Oh until the breath runs out. You can read your wound, its hidden seam, its slipknot. And that, of course, is one of the great purposes of poetry. Thank you very much. author, Allison Grace Myers, is a lecturer at Texas State University. Her fiction has been awarded with the John Steinbeck Prize from Reed Magazine, and her nonfiction has appeared in Image Journal, one of the nation's premier literary journal for writing on faith-based subjects. That same piece, which some of you have had a chance to read, Perfume Poured Out, was named Honorable Mention for Best American Essays in 2017. She currently serves as prose editor for Eco Theo Review, which is a magazine that specializes in the intersections between ecology and faith. Allison Grace Meyer's prose explores our connectivity and even the most quotidian of experiences. Her work spins so much gold out of cultural connections from the epistles of St. Paul to George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, and always brings us back 
to everything that we take for granted, evidence to the ubiquity of our cultural immersion in something as simple as smell, for example. It's considered in both its literary evidence and life-affecting absence. Alison Grace is currently at work on her first novel, which we're all eagerly anticipating, and I believe we're about to hear some from. So, Alison Grace Myers, everyone. How's the volume? Everyone hear me? All right, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is wonderful, a wonderful event, and I'm so excited for this conversation we're about to have about um, how the joys and struggles of the life of writing can connect to the joys and struggles of the life of faith. Um, so I'm really glad to be here. Um, so yes, as Matthew just said, I am going to read a couple sections from the novel that I have been working on and revising for a few years uh, called The Inheritance of the Saints. Um, so it's about an interracial couple living in contemporary Atlanta. Um, the main character's name is Anna. She is uh, struggling to distance herself from her very evangelical past um, when her mother, who uh, you know disapproves of her interracial and uh, premarital relationship, um, comes to live with her and her boyfriend, Elliot. Um, and the novel's central themes um, you know, um, revolve a lot around uh, the inner conflict in Anna, um, uh, kind of the push-pull of, of really desiring to reconnect with that childhood faith that she has rejected but um, and that has caused her a lot of trauma, but that she also uh, felt a lot of comfort in at one time. Um, and also wanting to forge a new faith, um, even as she's terrified of it. Um, so themes of faith are, are very central to the novel. Um, so the first part I'm going to read is just from the very beginning. Um, so the character names you'll want to be aware of, Anna and Elliot are the two, the central characters of the novel, the, the couple. Um, and then Anna's sister, Hazel, is on the uh, opposite side of the phone conversation in this scene. So chapter one of The Inheritance of the Saints. Elliot was going through a Jesus phase. That's what Anna called it anyway, hoping her boyfriend would soon lose interest. She was trying her best not to panic. But that night when Anna's phone rang, Elliot was sprawled out on their couch with an enormous collection of Bonhoeffer's letters. He was so absorbed, brow furrowed, completely fucking enthralled by his latest theological discovery that he didn't even glance up from the page. Anna took her phone out to the back porch, shutting the door behind her, the sun was setting. Inky gray clouds crept over an electric sky, slow drifting puddles like an oil spill. Mom just needs to get out of town for a while, Hazel said. It's the least you could do. This was one of her sister's most well-worn and misused phrases. The least Anna could do? But only to visit, right? She doesn't want to live here. I don't know exactly how long she's fixing to stay. Oh God, Anna said. With Bill gone, she can't afford rent, Hazel said. She doesn't have a job right now. She's lonely. Anna's lungs nodded with guilt. She'd hardly spoken to her mother since this latest crisis. Bill, her mother's husband, they'd married only last year, had left her for someone else, announcing in a typo-written email that she wanted a divorce with an S.E. Anna's mother had forwarded her the message with a single-sentence comment, please pray for our marriage. Hazel said, staying with you and what's-his-name in Atlanta would be good for her. Anna didn't respond. The black guy, right? Wow. Why should I remember? I've never met him. I wonder why. Her sister always did this, pretended to forget Elliot's name. Why didn't mom call me herself, Anna said. 
She's not going to ask. She wants you to invite her. I don't have room, or I swear I'd take her. In the background, there was a loud crash, one of Hazel's boys yelling, It wasn't me. He did it. Cut it out, both of you, Hazel warned, and after another crash, Anna heard the phone being slammed on the table, heard the unmistakable sound of skin being smacked. When Hazel returned, she said, Just for a month, probably. Maybe two. What about Denny? You said he's doing better. Maybe it would be good for the two of them to... You've got to be kidding. Anna sighed. Why did she even bother? She couldn't blame her brother for keeping his distance, or Hazel for aggressively protecting him, but Anna couldn't help resenting Denny's estrangement. So clean and complete. How easy it must be. How convenient. Anna was six years younger than Hazel, eight younger than Denny. A lifetime's difference. She had been born too late to share in the memories that haunted her siblings and bound them together. The least you could do. She was the privileged outsider, the rubbernecker to the crash, and Hazel never let her forget it. I'll talk to Elliot, Anna said. Let me know, Hazel said, and added, love you, before abruptly hanging up. Anna's chest clenched with an ache almost like nostalgia. She went in and poured herself a glass of wine, gulping it down. It was something that Elliot, an only child, didn't understand, that gnawing intimacy of siblings, despite not particularly liking one another, despite rarely speaking, except in emergencies. She joined Elliot on the couch. He placed his hand on her thigh, and without taking his eyes off the book, traced his fingers lightly over Anna's skin, drawing spirals on her hip bone. She didn't let herself squirm, pretending to enjoy the pleasure of touch. These letters are incredible, Elliot said, as if she had asked. Her strategy so far was to try to ignore his new, what, intellectual rabbit hole, spiritual quest, his fascination with Christianity, he was obsessed with something called liberation theology, was only temporary, she kept telling herself. An academic curiosity, nothing more. The way someone might decide to read the classics they'd skipped in high school. I mean, this guy's in a Nazi prison, Elliot said, closing the book over his index finger. And instead of complaining, he's begging his parents' forgiveness for missing his sister's wedding. Sounds like a martyr complex. He was a martyr. I know, bad joke. The first time Anna had ever seen Elliot, he was sitting on the bench opposite hers in a quad at Emory with a tattered paperback by Nietzsche on his lap, and she'd been intrigued. So handsome, with his cream-colored blazer and blue polka dot tie, reading an author she knew nothing about, except that he was, she was pretty sure, an atheist. Elliot had looked up and smiled, the flash of those charming dimples. Back then, Anna had been desperate to cut away her roots. If he had been reading Bonhoeffer that day in the quad or any other book that she recognized as even remotely Christian, she would not have been interested. So who was on the phone, Elliot said. Anna hoped he would voice the objections she was too ashamed to say aloud. Surely Elliot would be wary of inviting her mother to stay with them indefinitely, a woman who once admitted she was not too fond of the idea of her daughter dating a black man then later denied ever saying such a thing, insisting that she believed in the equality of all God's children. But Elliot was surprisingly enthusiastic. Your mom has to get used to us eventually, he said. I'll win her over with my legendary charm. She'll drive me insane, Anna said. Come on, she can't be that bad. You don't know her. No, but I want to. He didn't get it, how presence could suffocate. Elliot's mother, a successful lawyer, had raised him from a polite distance with the help of a rotation of nannies. Anna and Elliot had been dating for three years, and still it was shocking how insufficiently their lives translated, how foreign and mysterious their childhoods seemed to one another. Maybe that was true of all couples. 
We see as if through dark glass, not yet face to face. One of the many Bible verses Anna had memorized as a child, lines that remain etched on her brain like scars. Your mom should stay as long as she wants. Opening up our home is the right thing to do. You make it sound like we're taking in a refugee, Anna said. We can't just be thinking of ourselves, you know, Elliot said. Anna's breath caught on something jagged sharp in her throat. He was getting dangerously close to actually quoting scripture at her. You forget I grew up with all that self-sacrificing crap. Elliot laughed. You mean hospitality? It sounds lovely, in theory, turn the other cheek, but trust me, it doesn't work. It's unhealthy. So cynical. Elliot ran his fingers through her hair. You know your pessimism turns me on. Besides weddings and funerals, Elliot had never once attended a church service. How is that possible, Anna had asked when she'd first discovered this. And he'd replied, grinning, not all black folks are churchgoers, you know, making her face flame hot with embarrassment. He'd endured none of the spiritual traumas, even the most basic ones, that seemed to Anna essential touchstones of growing up. He'd never felt that skin-prickling hope, that thrill of believing that a particular breeze or song lyric or stranger's smile might be a personal visitation from the Holy Spirit, and he'd never known the shame of its slippery nature, the bruise of loss when it vanished. His agnosticism was too easily earned. He lacked the armor of a conversion story. Whenever she talked to Elliot about her Jesus-drenched upbringing, she always, pointed, she always painted it as the veneer of a joke, her born-again PTSD. He had no idea. He didn't realize that seeing the co a copy of the Bible on her boyfriend's desk, even if he claimed to be only using it for reference, made her body tense up in fear. We should offer to buy her plane ticket, Elliot said. She's scared of flying. I told you that. I'm sure she'll take a bus. From Texas? That'll be brutal. Besides, Anna said, she's too stubborn to let you, us, pay for something she can't afford. An exaggeration, maybe. Surely her mother could scrape together the money for a plane ticket if she wanted to. But it felt good to say this, satisfying, to see the rich boy guilt flicker over his face. Um, so I'm going to skip a few scenes, um, and uh, the next and final scene I'll read um, takes place uh, the day that Anna's mother does arrive from Texas in Atlanta. Um, and so Anna has just picked her up from the bus station and um, is kind of postponing bringing her home to introduce her to Elliot. So they're at a diner one-on-one -on -one, um, having lunch uh, before, before going home. <clears throat> Anna wrapped her hands around a steaming mug of black coffee. The sharp burn against her palms was distracting, comforting. The waitress arrived with their food. She had tattoos stretching the length of her arms and an ink necklace of calligraphy curling around her collarbone. Thank you, dear, Anna's mother said, all maternal and pleased with herself. Then she turned to Anna. Will you bless the food? Anna cringed. You can. I'd rather hear you, sweetie. No thanks. Her mother squeezed shut her eyes and bowed her head. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day, and thank you for the blessing of being here with my daughter. I ask that you would draw her close to you, extend your loving arms around her, so that she would come to know you again. Anna stared down at the plastic tablecloth, where a tulip-shaped ketchup stain was trying to disguise itself, blending in among the printed flowers. Only in prayer did her mother discuss or even acknowledge Anna's loss of faith. 
She openly criticized many of her daughter's other lifestyle choices, but unless she was directly voicing her concerns to God, she insisted on maintaining the illusion that Anna was still a Christian, only going through a brief phase of not attending church. Anna should state it unequivocally, she knew, expose it raw. I'm not a believer, never will be again. Her mother should understand the totality, the completeness with which she'd rejected her faith, the faith which, as a child, Anna had craved like a drug. But the few times that she had attempted to tell her mother that she no longer believed, not in the same God her mother worshipped, definitely, a God who demanded unquestioning devotion from the people from whom he withheld so much, who sat on a heavenly throne wringing his hands in despair over every perceived slight, but who neglected to intervene in moments of true injustice who left behind an empty, abandoned cross which had hung on the wall of Pastor Kreiner's office like a cruel joke, and not in some beneficent karma-distributing force either, no vaguely comforting spirit directing the arc of the universe towards goodness, because really, where was the evidence of that? The confession had caused her mother to break down into tears. Even so, Anna must not have been convincing. Her mother was still clinging to a shred of hope, choosing to believe her daughter was not a lost cause. Most of all, Lord, she continued, thank you for loving us and bearing our sins on the cross. We pray that, you would be, that we would be glorifying to you in everything that we do. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen, Anna said, instinctively, accidentally, which made her mother smile. Her mother chewed at her club sandwich with studied concentration, like a connoisseur of dried toast and soggy deli meat. Delicious, she said. Then, first bite complete, she returned the massive ham and turkey tower to her plate, pausing for conversation. So, sweetie, she placed both hands palm down on the table. I really appreciate you letting me stay with y'all for a while. I hope Elliot doesn't mind. He's looking forward to it, getting to know you. Me too. Anna watched her, waiting. But I do just need to say this. It does grieve me that you're living together outside of marriage. I know I've told you before, but I don't want you to think I'm condoning this lifestyle. Not condoning. Got it. It's nothing to joke about, sweetie. Sex is designed for marriage only. The Bible says it plain as day, the sacredness of marriage. Mm-hmm. As if all she needed was a reminder. Did her mother honestly think she could have forgotten or misjudged the importance, the absolute cosmic necessity of remaining a virgin until marriage? Before she even understood what sex was, she had signed a purity pledge promising to save it, whatever it was, as a perfect and undamaged gift to her future husband. Purity in body, heart, and mind, no kissing, no holding hands, no close friendships with anyone of the opposite gender, for fear that the slightest physical or emotional intimacy could lead her into temptation, or worse, could cause one of her brothers in Christ to stumble, had been so thoroughly ingrained in her that the shame of falling short, even now, even though she no longer believed in or cared about any ideal of holiness, still rattled around in her bloodstream, impossible to drain out. I haven't seen much sacredness in marriage, Anna said. But as soon as she'd blurted this out, she immediately regretted it, seeing the hurt pass over her mother's face. Oh, Anna, she shook her head. You shouldn't use me as an example. I meant in general, Mom, I wasn't talking about you. I just want you to think about it. This is the last I'll bring it up. Great. But will you think about it? Anna laughed. You wouldn't even want me to marry Elliot. He's black, remember? Oh, I don't have a problem with that. Not really. Anna watched her mother's face struggle to maintain its composure, even felt a twinge of sympathy. 
I do think it's probably easier to be with someone who shares your same culture, her mother said carefully. I'm not racist or anything, but there are a lot of differences. The value systems are different, and that's just a fact. Is it? Anna had heard this before, and from people she wouldn't have guessed. Until she started dating Elliot, Anna had assumed that the only people who thought this way lived in places like her hometown of Sidon, Texas. But even in Atlanta, plenty looked surprised or tried too hard with their friendly smiles. What did you expect, Elliot had said, when she first started noticing? She was uncomfortable with the attention, unaccustomed to standing out in a crowd. She would say, table for two, and the restaurant hostess would look around the lobby, confused. Elliot liked to joke that they should have shirts made, like those with arrows that said, I'm with stupid, to preemptively clarify, I'm with her, I'm with him. But he was used to this. He'd only ever dated white girls, or light-skinned girls, from exotic places, Portugal, or Denmark, or Costa Rica. He'd probably made the joke about the shirts with them, too. I'm not racist, her mother repeated. If you're going to live with him, even if he is African-American. She paused, as if to be sure Anna had heard her using what she thought was the more sensitive term. Then you should get married. End of story. And that's all I'm going to say. She turned her attention back to her club sandwich. This is delicious, she said again, with complete sincerity. That's it. Final reader tonight is G.C. Waldrop. G.C. Waldrop is a professor of English at Bucknell University. He's the author of six collections of poetry, including his most recent collection, Feast Gently, from Tupelo Press, which just recently won the prestigious William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. He has also co-edited with poets Ilya Kavinsky and Joshua Corey, respectively, the collection Homage to Paul Chelan and the Arcadia Project, North American Postmodern Pastoral, a curated volume examining the 21st century pastoral poem and its place in how we look at eco-poetics. His work has earned honors, fellowships, and prizes from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Landon Foundation, and the Academy of American Poets. Professor Waldrop is also editor of West Branch, Bucknell's wonderful literary magazine, and has been editor-at-large for the last 10 years or so for the Kenyan Review. About his most recent book, poet Rick Barrett wrote, Waldrop has been writing poetry that inhabits the tensions between faith and matter, flesh and mind, fullness and nullity. The poems in this beautiful and demanding book inquire into the body itself, the prismatic entity that manifests as the lyric body, the civic body, the spirit body, and the achingly physical body. Please welcome G.C. Waldrop. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you all for coming. Um, Beautiful. One of the beautiful things about poetry is that it means this will all be over soon. So, I'll read three poems. This is called My Beast Made of Gold is My Vocation. My beast made of gold is my vocation. It walks with me and makes a peaceable sound. It has no wings and it has no clay. I never touch it if I can help it, though sometimes, knocked roughly, I brush it by accident. And that is when the pain comes. 
and the great poems cover their famished faces. Which is the true prison, the church, the garden, the body, or the mind? My beast doesn't answer, but I detect a slight modulation in its earthy hum. I cannot leave it, and it evidently will not leave me. I wish I had a cord with which to bind it up. Bless the rain, which washes the eye clear and remembers nothing but what we have discarded in the skies. It wraps my golden beast in its wet hands. I want to return the earth's broad phylacteries which it left in my care. This is the furthest I will get from love and love's children adrift in the blue-eyed grass. My beast prepares a place for me. It is not the place I wanted. But I recognize myself in its contagious mysteries. Oh, beast, surrender. I call into the night's tight coin. It remains beside me, unblinking. It is a beast, and I am a man. Together we make our worship. Um, a few years ago, I had um, a series of mental and physical problems that uh, my doctors and I began to think might be Parkinson's, uh, which is um, a word we use for a series of symptoms that we don't fully understand. But they told me that it probably it wasn't Parkinson's because I didn't have the tremors yet. And they, they said to go about my business, but if the tremors started... Um, yes, it probably was Parkinson's, and I should come back. And I was flying home from Wales, uh, high, high over the Atlantic a few years ago, and suddenly the tremors started in my left hand. I couldn't stop them. Um, and this is the poem I wrote with my right hand on the plane. It's called, As Flesh Made New Through Burning. The gentle tremor that has begun now in my left hand between thumb and forefinger is not history. Its seed lies buried deep in sleep, in the neurochemistry of sleep, which traces its faint salt patterns on the stone of my soul. Stone of my soul, the former world is alive with the drained pools bracketing moss, with insect life, with the toad flax and orpine, those useful entities that remind us how much of a wall the heart may come to conduct, to encompass, and consume. I think of the tremor in my hand as a gentle song, a new hymn my body has begun. There's a single cook fire on the open plain, a single eye tends it, childhood, and childhood's memories of childhood, in spiraling. The tremor, the hymn in my hand, knows nothing of either fire or eye and does not care. Song has no compassion because through song compassion is woven from disparate threads. My home was a wall for a little while. I suckled there. I brought the hand out of its glass case in the moonlight. I will give thee the treasures of darkness. I read as the palm spasmed, slow gimmel of praise at 36,000 feet, and the stray stone takes its due place in the wall to meet out possession or else keep graves from spilling into the paths of the living. Break me. I want to whisper. While beside me, immigrant children compare chipped glyphs and the flickering curvature. They have tasted a small dream and found it good. To worship the punishment is banal, except when it demands antiphone 
response. The eye that tends the campfire demands a siege, but I am answering the tremor in my hand with the smallest possible service my damaged vocal cords can muster. Sleep moves within us like another music I never clearly hear. My house is dark, and tomorrow we separate the lambs from the ewes. I have even learned to take some pleasure in their crying. Perhaps no sin is greater than this severance. And um, this one, I come from the Carolinas. Uh, my family were textile workers. They were poor folks in the Carolinas. They lived in company towns, mill villages, where everything was owned by the company. The, um, the churches were owned by the company, the houses, every, of course, the mill. Um, and mostly in the 50s and 60s, companies got rid of that property. They sold it to the people. But this is about a little town in North Carolina called Cliffside where I had cousins where the company, for tax reasons, decided to evict all the people and tear down all the houses. And then they tore down the stores and the town hall. And then they, tore, then they closed the mill. And then they tore that down. So it was a town of 2,000 people. And now it's a rubble field. Um, they couldn't tear down a few buildings because they had leased the ground that they owned, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, and the post office. They leased to the churches and to the federal government. So they didn't have the right to tear those buildings down, so they surrounded them with barbed wire. And there they are to this day. It's called, In Him Were Hidden All Our Tongues, which is a title from the 6th century Iraqi poet Ephraim, who I love. Cliffside, North Carolina. This is the last poem. Abide with me. Zion is wasted, and these mowers move each like an abandoned church across this grasscape, replete in their genitals. Magnolia, sire, your faith is in my mouth below the ruined Baptist church. I am buying, I am selling, I cannot think for all the roses that have died for me, for me, taking this block wall, this rail, this cracked asphalt, a little higher, a little lower, my friend theologian, born up on your memorized flood, Inside the frame chapel, a single shadow, white, and another shadow, black, and all along a single bell, canted and ringing. This is not about responsibility. This is not about the post office, the Masonic Lodge, so extant they repel the sun. There is always a point of entry into the church of the body, which is sometimes furnished, sometimes not. Imagine the arms of the men and women carrying the last flowers from this building, masquerading as my funeral, my dramatis personae. You see, when a body carries something before it, the hands, the tips of the hands, move into the future first. And there is a certain looseness, a certain bend to the knee. So you can still send a letter there, suitably franked. Trespass is possible. Replace the houses with trailers and feel if not good about it, then at least strong, able to wield any tool to mow in season, male and female, the mowers scattered now across the apron of the hill. Soon I will almost remember where I am, the great bruise called art dredged up from the deep tissues of history, that ravished mirror. My parents said they worked for hours and hours as if they were guests. I could have watched their children playing in the sand pit by the school, but that would have been wrong. Behind the next hill crouches a low building, now labeled the Church of the Exceptional for the physically and mentally handicapped, which I am quite sure used to be something else 
Pentecostal maybe. Wheels within wheels. Sing the mowers. Shanty style. But there's no one to answer the children having been led blindfolded back into the school. I am not making this up and I'm not grieving. I have just broken off a blade of palmetto and rolled it between my fingers, which are the future that we share. The difference between what is priestly and what is merely priest. Flowering and unflowering. In the heat of the day, it's fat, percussive, not. There is not enough marriage imagery in the world of this poem. My lame accountant told me after the fact. I'd asked the mowers, but they have fled from me now into the shade of their noonday meal, set the first gate beneath the night's jute skin. I have drawn you a map of what is most fallow within me where the altars once stood. The time I vaulted the railing to save the boy whose polyester robe had leapt up in flame. And the time... I did not. The time I merely watched to see what would happen next. These grasses are what happens next. And the high places from which our lives run down like definitions, parable and blastocyst and felon. There are no hunters here because it is not the season for hunting. My knowledge takes me this far, as far as the calluses between forefinger and thumb. Desolate and void, the master sang, but so beautifully I wanted to follow him. So I followed him and threw me past men and women, their arms all held out, not in supplication or welcome, but in the bearing of burdens. Abide with me, oh, you pretty adoption. I will be your map. I will lift your body. I am gathering the grass of you into my arms right now. Don't listen to the mowers or to the songs their children sing. Thank you all. Can we get one more round of applause for all of our, our authors? Thank you very much. So I want to open this up to questions very soon, but when we shared some of our author's work with students, um, some of them gave us some questions, and I want to ask at least a couple of these questions to honor that particular uh, request. And one of the questions I want to ask and just give out sort of more generally is a question that actually helped inspire bringing this panel together. And that question is, have you ever felt pressure to keep your work more secular or to keep faith or religion out of it? And further, how did you approach or overcome or sort of deal with that particular feeling? Yes. Um, I didn't. Um, I wanted to be a writer when I was young, and I, I took a fiction class, and I was told I had no talent and should stop, which was not the crime. The crime was that I believed that. Um, so um, faith and poetry came to me at exactly the same time. They came to 
together, and they've always been together. Um, so for me, how to manage that is, is a question. It's a vocational question in the art and in Christ. Um, but but separating them out or, or making giving way in one for the other uh, has never been my experience, and I feel very blessed in that actually. That I, I have I didn't get that choice. Um, sometimes we love to have choice. Sometimes it's nice not. To. Um, so for me, that's that's an easy one. But. And most of it is not about faith, but there is a section towards the end that examines, um, you know, the idea of smell and uh, the mind and, um, you know, my desire to connect with God and wondering if, um, you know, uh, I'm less able to tangibly understand God because of my lack of five senses. Um, and I remember uh, someone in the workshop who was usually a really, really thoughtful and great reader for me, um, you know, she loved the essay and said that it was almost perfect, but that I should just take that section out um, because for her it was very jarring because, you know, most of the essay wasn't about faith and then suddenly there was this section um, that was and it was very jarring to her. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't end up taking that advice and, you know, did publish it with a journal that was specifically focused on faith, but I remembered that advice, and I, I think it's true in a way, um, you know, there, and it's something to keep in mind about your audience, is that for some people that don't have that lens of faith, um, if the work that you're writing um, isn't explicitly about that, is like its central theme, but just has it as a context, or has a small section of it, as it naturally probably will, if that's part of your point of view, um, it might be really jarring for people who, who don't uh, have that experience, and, and that's okay, and it's good to know, um, you know, who your audience is and who's who's reading, and um, keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, but besides that one that one time, I wouldn't say I've ever felt that pressure, but um, I, I do keep in mind that there are, you know, certain audience members uh, or certain readers who will um, appreciate parts uh, of my work that have to do with faith more than more than others. I think in some ways I've had the opposite problem, um, which is as a sister of the Holy Cross, as a Catholic sister, period, people have certain expectations about uh, what you can say or what you can't say, what you can write about or what you're not supposed to write about. And uh, that gets in the way gotten in the way more often in the workshop setting than anything else. And it got so that sometimes I didn't even say I was a sister of the Holy Cross and just, I'm Eva Hooker, I come from Indiana, and blah, blah, blah. And three weeks later they'd find out and then they were really mad. <laughs> but I couldn't see what they were mad about, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> this is my problem and not their problem. <laughs> anyway, it gave me more freedom to uh, to write in any way uh, I pleased. And and then, of course, there was the reckoning of identity uh, later on. But I, I, at that point, you know, the work gets polished and it gets, uh, it as it goes through all the stages of revision, you get more detached in some ways. 
from it. And uh, that makes a real difference. Yeah, I think this is a constant reckoning for me. So this book took a long time to be published because it was sincerely spiritual but not catechistic. So uh, traditional literary publishers didn't want it because it was spiritual. It wasn't treating spirituality ironically. And then Christian publishers didn't want it because it wasn't catechistic. So it just took a long time. And... Um, you know, it's it's hard to write something from your heart and then get 40 rejections. Of, you know, it's it's difficult. That part I, I find difficult. And then what I ended up living after this, after writing this, was um, I fell in love with someone and had a child with him, and he was a very profoundly spiritual person. He studied to be a rabbi, but he was just a really good person. And um, he developed ALS, and... So I cared for him, and we had a baby. So I had years of, um, we had years of that. Because the spiritual was at the heart of our life, that was the, that was the meaning of that chapter. It was awful. It's, it's not like I'm going to say, so I'm not going to just um, say it was okay because it was meaningful, but we lived it as a sacrament in terms of gleaning meaning from it. So, and it was beautiful in the sense that in a physical disease like ALS, he lost everything he could do, but he still had his essence and his being. And so it was almost like this really difficult training in the soul, in believing in the soul. And so I wrote a memoir from it that is now going through the rounds of rejection in the same way because there's a lot of readers who, it's, an, it's a difficult memoir to read. It's gritty. It's about the difficulty of life. But it's also overtly spiritual because that was how we experienced that. So I've had a lot of readers say, well, can't you just take this part out? Oh because we don't want to hear about the spirituality. We just want to hear about how hard it is to be a caregiver. But for me, the real meaning was the spirituality. So um, it's tricky because I actually think readers are more open, that, but we're really afraid of the conversation um, in, in some way. Unless, like you're saying, it's within a tradition. Like it's almost like we need those spaces. But out in the wide open of literature, it seems like it it um, it's feared or distrusted. And and one reader, sorry, I'm going on, but one reader who said the reason I don't trust the spiritual parts is it feels like you're um, using like received language. And that's an interesting thing to think about, that there's, we do come with a vocabulary around faith that maybe does need to be sharpened as writers. So I think that's something that we walk the line of, too, as writers, writing about the experience of faith. I want to ask one more generalized question before we, we jump in. Um, and I'm sort of altering it a tiny bit, but I want to talk to you as teachers of writing and not just as writers. So when you're critiquing writing, either for a student or for a friend or for a fellow writer, will the presence of faith or some kind of religious content um, 
be a difficulty in that particular process, either for you as the critiquer or in being critiqued. Obviously, we have some discussion about being critiqued, but I wonder if you've ever had an, an interaction with a student or perhaps as an editor where this content came up and it, it made it difficult because of the, the religious nature or the faith-based nature of the material. I don't know if anybody can speak to that. Well, I have this tremendous gift right now of a student. The day this arrived in the mail, I actually felt very like tender and um, shy around it. Because it's not, this kind of project doesn't feel original, right? It feels like it's a deep need. Anyway, my current honor student wrote to me out of the blue that day. We were set to start in the fall, and she said, I really want to write my whole project on Lilith. In the Garden of Eden. And I don't teach at a Catholic school. I teach at a regular big research university. But I feel like it's not original to do that. I was like, yeah, but if this is what you need to do, you need to do it. So I've had these amazing gifts where it starts to feel like a little world within a world. Or like a congregation within a wider world where you can have these conversations. And I love those moments. Um, I teach students who are almost all between the ages of 18 and 21. And those, uh, those four years are years in which uh, the women are often testing the parameters of their faith. How, how, uh, what are the rules? And they always wonder, what are the rules about X? And it's hard for them to realize that rules are not really the things that are going to give you the, the deepest answers to uh, religious questions. So I often end up with, and I'm going blank on the name, was the, uh, the novel by Margaret Atwood that was all the rage last year. Handmaid's Tale. In The Handmaid's Tale, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer is rewritten. So one of the assignments I give the students is to write another Our Father. Not necessarily out of your own voice, but maybe out of the voice of one of the other characters in the novel. And they... <coughs> That assignment gave me the most surprises because it was as if they broke through some uh, uh, barrier and could really write a prayer which was deep and original and in their own words. And they, in fact, wanted to have all their prayers printed up and so everybody would have everybody's prayers. And I said, okay, that's your project. You can go fix that yourselves. Uh, but if, if you can find an assignment uh, that will free them up so that they can imagine themselves in a new spiritual space, which at the same time honors the religious values that they have grown up with. And sometimes they just have to kind of break a few rules in their own minds in order to do that. Not necessarily in real life, but in, the, you know, break it so that you can set it again. Yeah,
Um, well, in my teaching life, I uh, teach uh, Introduction to College Writing, not Creative Writing, uh, so freshman comp. Um, so when I am uh, reading students' work, uh, you know, it's, it's essays, and yes, if uh, religion comes up in those types of essays, um, you know, often it's, as Rachel was saying, um, you know, a very much received language and not as nuanced as uh, you would hope. Um, so if I, you know, do find a student that is writing in a, in a nuanced um way about religion um, or about their faith. It's uh, an incredible, incredible gift as a, as a teacher. Um, but in uh, creative writing and, and you know, editing um, friends work or in workshop, um, you know, I would say uh, sort of the flip side to what I was saying earlier where, you know, I had a reader that felt it was jarring to find faith in someone's work. Um, you know, I, I definitely, as a reader, find myself, um, you know, my lens is uh, through um, uh, someone who, who uh, you know, experiences the world through a life of faith, and um, I, I have to remind myself that that is uh, not a lens in someone else's work, and so while I might see themes that resonate with me and my faith in their work and kind of want um, to encourage them to pull those themes out more or, um, uh, you know, encourage um, yeah, those themes of, of hope or restoration that I might see, um, you know, I do have to remember that that's not necessarily the, the themes that they are trying to uh, illuminate in their work. Um, so I, I guess that would be um, the only impediment. Yeah, I teach at a secular school, and um, um, there is a fairly firm rule that, that those of us of faith cannot bring up subjects relating to faith with students. They have to bring it up to us first, and and so and then we're free to respond as we will. And that creates some interesting constraints. Teaching Hopkins, for instance, um, and how how one does that. It's like, oh, I don't know who he's talking about. <laughs> could be, could be. Sounds like. Um, but, um, I guess, um, but I do feel really strongly that we have this capacity we call that, that masquerades under the, the word the imagination. And it is something that the culture in which we're currently embedded deeply desires us not to use. Not to use it, or if we do use it, to trivialize it as childish um, or not real in some way. Um, and it's, it's a faculty that we're given. It's a spiritual faculty. And if we don't use it like any other faculty, it atrophies. So... Um, so for me, that, that feels like a vocational thing that I do in workshop with my students. I want them to hone that. I want them to use that imaginative, going back to Eva's comment on, on imagination. I want them to use that muscle. And, and for me, it comes back, unless you are a particularly special person, you have not been visited by the living God in the flesh. Um, he does that, but not often. Uh, we have to apprehend him in other ways. And the imagination... Um, simile, imagery, metaphor, these, these are parts of the ways that we apprehend them and that the church um, has supported our apprehension of him for, for a long, long time. So, so I guess I feel that in, in teaching students um, to, to use that, that muscle of the imagination, wherever they're coming from, um, that it opens up a space uh, through which the spiritual can work. And um, I do, I mean, I belong to a religious order that dresses differently. And in Pennsylvania, at least, this signifies something. I was told three times today, oh, you, out here you just look like another Portland hipster. <laughs> and I said, well, that's nice. Um, but where I live in Pennsylvania, um, you know, they can tell who and what I am uh, from my clothing. 
and um, and they know where my office is. So if that leads them uh, to wanting to have a deeper conversation, they know where to find me. Um, we get, I mean, I, I got that from a poet that uh, Matthew studied with, Bridget Pegging Kelly, um, who when I was struggling with the idea of faith when I was young, was her poems that gave me the idea that you could create, you could invoke, it's there already, a space in the imagination in which um, the spiritual can work, in which Christ can work. Um, and it can be a scary space. It's not always a comforting space. It's not always a safe space, to go back to what you were saying, Eva. Um, but it's, it's a space where, where God can work. And teaching students to open that space and trusting that other things can happen uh, in good time um, is really important to me. And I think uh, students are in a lot of pain these days. And having... Uh, a writerly space in which they are free to find metaphors and images uh, for that pain uh, or they, they may feel they have been abandoned by a parent uh, they may feel they've been abused uh, the, the darkness is awful and uh, I, th I think one of our responsibilities is to somehow enable them to carry that darkness so that they can find light somewhere. And being able to describe the darkness in the first place is a first step. Absolutely. We do have time for a couple of questions from the audience. Does anybody have a question, either for one of our panel members or, or for everyone? Just a general question? Any questions? That's okay. Sometimes we're just calm and <laughs> don't necessarily have a particular question. Yeah. What suggestion would you have for somebody who is looking to develop a skill at writing? Read. Read. And what Eva said, avoid received language, at least um, as a schoolmaster. If you've heard something said before, don't say it. Um, not in your poem, your story, anywhere. Um, that may lead you wrong short in the short term, but it won't in the long term. And I'd suggest meditating. So there were these books that came out in like the early 80s by Natalie Goldberg, Writing Down the Bones and Wild Mind. And she uses the format of Zen meditation, where you sit for 10 or 20 minutes and you don't judge any thought that's coming through your mind. You just put it on the page. And she uses that for something called free writing. And so... I really love the practice of just meditating for a few minutes, you know, 10, 20 minutes, and then writing without judgment and getting away from the side of the mind that would judge and edit and try to make everything neat too early. And I think that opens into the space of the imagination and into what you, what will have urgency for you to write. But um, we're so surrounded by judgment and hierarchical thinking that would compare everyone and everything. And so just to cultivate a space outside of that, I think it's really helpful. I like taking the paintings off the walls. 
uh, in the classroom. And I mean, I'd take all of these off and there'd be a student sitting on each side. And, and then you're just one word, say what you see, say what you see, say what you see. And you think you've said it all? Okay, look again, say what you see. And it's amazing uh, how all of a sudden um, they're talking and then they grab their paper and then they're starting, starting to write. But it's because they have said what they see and they shared it together. So you have all the different points of view coming uh, simultaneously. But just one word, saying what you see. I see the purple, I see a, a curve, I see gold, I, you know, whatever. And it's a discipline to say what you see. They can do it outside of the campus as well, <laughs> when it's gorgeous. I would, I would also say, um, you know, going along with, with what uh, Rachel was saying about um, no judgment, I mean, I would say one important um, thing, at least uh, for me, um, is to um, really focus on and remember the importance of the, the process itself and the value of the process mm -hmm. itself, rather than, um, you know, trying to focus too much on where is this going to be published and who's going to like it, and, um, you know, to, to keep the, the focus on um, uh, the value of the writing and that there's... Um, that there's goodness and, and grace in that process, even if, um, you know, whenever it gets published. Um, so, yeah, that's important for someone starting out. And if you can't do that, you should pick another occupation, like the tea. Um, <laughs> you really should, because you have, to, you have to love doing it when you're doing it. You have to feel like there's value in that moment. And the other questions you can worry about later. If you need judgment, there's always time for judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Right. We do have time for, for one more question, if there's one other question. Elizabeth. Um, thank you all. This is so delightful. Uh, I, I wonder if uh, you might share one particular problem or conflict for which a faith-based approach is giving you particular traction in your, in your writing. So I guess for me, I, I had a cancer diagnosis 10 years ago, and that was bad. So far, that's a happy ending, like I'm here. Um, and then I had the Parkinson's diagnosis that went on for four years before we found out it was something else, and it was something treatable, which Parkinson's is not. Um, so that's good, too. Um, Cancer was easy because there's like a quick, you know, you're diagnosed and there's surgery and there's radiation and or chemo and that either works or it doesn't, then you do it again until you don't do it anymore. Um, you're either cured or you're not. Parkinson's had no roadmap. There's no roadmap. You're going to die really painfully and messily somewhere between three months and 20 years from now and you can't predict it. And, um, and I, you know, one hopes faith will be helpful in such moments, right? Um, I can't tell you that illness makes you a better person. I don't think it made me a better, it made me a different person. And, and, um, and I'm glad that I had faith to go through that because I think, I mean, I'm telling you this because of the word you used, which was traction, because that was a tractionless situation. It was a free fall for me being 46 and getting that diagnosis. And, um, and then later not. Um, but that was, you know, I, I realized faith was not going to save me from this, that all kinds of people of faith go through all kinds of things. Um, and, um, and I didn't like the saccharine received 
um, you know, ideas about suffering, whether you're caring for someone else or you're going through it. Oh, this makes you so much more holier. No, it makes you, it made me very, very angry. Um, and, and so it was faith that gave me the traction to think, no, I have to take hold of this because it's taken hold of me. And uh, we can take hold of this together if we will. And, and there's a possibility there in terms of writing, but also in terms of experience. Um, things I didn't expect, and some great beauty inside it, too. And some terror. Mm -hmm. Some real terror. Mm -hmm. um, wow, well, that was kind of caught up in that and sort of forgot this. <laughs> Could you say the question one more time? <laughs> uh, a particular question or conflict for which mm -hmm. a faith-based approach gives you particular traction. Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess thinking about the the writing life um, and questions and conflicts in my writing life, um, I, I guess I would say, um, you know, thinking about how the, the process of, of writing and coming to the table each day, I mean, it doesn't, we were just saying we need to take value in, in uh, the process and enjoy it for itself. At the same time, it's also um, often uh, very uh, unfulfilling sometimes when you sit down and write. Um, uh, and a lot of times, uh, you know, at least when I sit down and write, um, you know, I don't always feel that, that um, uh, uh, sense of inspiration. Um, and so um, I guess, um, you know, reminding myself of, um, uh, you know, that I have to keep at it and keep coming to the table just as I keep going to church and coming to the communion table. And, um, you know, the, um, the faith that is required to um, continue to, to live a life of faith is also required to continue being a writer and continue um, continue at it even when um, you know you keep revising the same chapter over and over or keep um, working on the same novel for years and years and years. Um, so um, you know, I, I guess I think of um, you know I'm, I'm Episcopalian and in our service uh, when we uh, go up to the communion table we uh, say. Um, we say our hands are empty until you fill them, um, and I think about that a lot. Just this idea of coming um, to to my writing, um, you know, with with empty hands and often empty words, um, but just keep coming and hoping that um, the inspiration will will eventually come. Well, lately I have a sense of lurching from one disaster to another. <laughs> um, I too lost a a dear, dear friend to ALS. Uh, dearest friend in the congregation, uh, we entered around the same time and sort of went through. Uh, both of us were college teachers and we went to graduate school at the same time, different places, etc. So it was long, long, long friendship. So ML died and I wrote a really nasty poem in here her young death, loose in you, which ends necessity is our only testy mother. And then two years later, I broke my neck. And I was up on an island in Lake Superior by myself. I didn't know I had broken my neck. I knew something was the matter with it and got in the car and drove to the ferry, got on the ferry, went to Ashland. Uh, they put me in this thing, and put me in an ambulance and sent me to Duluth. And there I am in the hospital, and the surgeon comes, uh, the not surgeon, but that doctor, comes roaring in, and he says, Well, Eva, God must want you to do something, because you are this much from being totally paralyzed. That much. And if that little, I could have done it just 
driving the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I sat, I lay there. They were trying to find me a room so they could put me in the, um, wherever they put spinal problems. And I'm lying there and I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> what does God want me to do now? And I was like, oh God, you've got to be kidding. This is a very bad joke. <laughs> I'm not kidding though. I know, I know, I know. So um, I had first to get well and get out of all those braces. Um, but I still haven't figured, quite figured out what it is. And I said, but let's not make the next message so nasty, please. <laughs> no big accidents anymore. Thank you very much. <laughs> See, I still so glad you're here. You're okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's amazing. It is. Um, I can move my head. <laughs> well, I guess that some of that amazement is part of this, right? Yes. And the gratitude, and um, I actually just feel like echoing what everyone said about this. For me, the experience of faith and the process, practice of writing have gone hand in hand, and definitely the most intense chapter was when Richard was suffering from ALS and dying. But it it wasn't a release from that as much as an intensified life. So I, I had these feelings of like faith doesn't deliver you. It's you take it, you get it all, and it's all really vivid. But there was a because we had been developing this and, and not and outside of a church, so but developing this trust that our lives had meaning because we were both writers and we were paying attention to the messages in them. We were able to stay present and not go away because things get really hard. So um, I, I think for me, the gift of, of these processes is, is a way to stay present with what is. Thank you very much. One more. One more. So we as a group are going to retire to the pilot house uh, and have a couple of drinks. So we welcome everyone to come with us. Please do. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Mm-hmm.